I want to thank everybody for listening today. This is Ken Feith with the Metro Nashville Archives, and this is Back in the Day. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Deanne Killen. She's a historian, works with the DAR chapters here in Nashville, and she's got some really fascinating things to talk with us about today. And she's going to lead off, I think, with Cornelia Fort. So first, let me welcome you, uh, Deanne, to the show. Thank and you. take it away. Okay. Of course, the DAR is about, you know, education, mm-hmm. historical preservation. Um, so I really, we have really made a push for women, for minorities that mm-hmm. have been kind of forgotten along the way. Yeah. And so one of the people that I really, that I'm really inspired by is Cornelia Clark Fort, mm-hmm. who's originally from Nashville. Hmm. Many people have heard about, have heard of the uh, Cornelia Fort Airport. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. which was actually named for her. She was born in 1919 Hmm. here in Nashville. She was the oldest daughter in a family of five children. There was three older brothers, her, and then a little sister later on. Hmm. I had a family, yeah. She was actually born into privilege. She was a debutante. Her father was a doctor who helped found um, the National Insurance and Accident Insurance Company here in Nashville. Wow. Um, her mother was a Boston socialite who had, was just charmed with Nashville uh-huh. and came, and she charmed everybody here, even though she was a Yankee, quote-unquote. <laughs> I was fixing to say, that, that's really early for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Her family had a 400-acre estate called Fortland Farms hmm. near Shelby Park, had 24 rooms. I do not know how they cleaned all those yeah. without servants. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, she went to... Uh, Ward Belmont Academy, mm-hmm. which we now know as Belmont College, and was the precursor for Harpeth Hall. Mm-hmm. And then she actually wound up going up to Sarah Lawrence and getting her degree. Oh, wow. Okay. She was a tall tomboy, mm-hmm. but everybody still believed that she would marry into privilege, mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. lifestyle she was raised. Wasn't to be. Uh, she came home after she graduated in 1939, and her father was ill and dying about 1940. Hmm. And he made her brothers promise that none of them would ever fly an airplane because they scared him. <laughs> they terrified him. Yeah, and so he made them all promise on his deathbed that they would not fly. He didn't think to ask her. He didn't ask her. <laughs> and so after the loss of her father, who she was very close to, she got one of her friends said, here, let me take you up in an airplane. She fell in love. Got her out of her depression for the first time mm-hmm. in a long time. And she said that the one thing was that I just want to settle into this cockpit and stay here. Drove her mother nuts. <laughs> I can't imagine. That that seemed like it'd be pretty rare. A female pilot for this is like 1940 or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, this pretty seemed like it would be pretty rare, pretty unusual, you mm-hmm. know, for a female. Well, in less than a year, she actually had her pilot's license. And if I'm... Correctly, because I don't have it in front of me. She was the second woman in the state of Tennessee to get her pilot's license. Really? How about that? Wow. Mm-hmm. She actually went to a civilian pilot's training program in Colorado that year hmm. and um, got to be an instructor. Wow. Not only is she a pilot, she's an instructor, you know, and we're still talking 1940. Mm-hmm. So this is pretty pretty amazing person, you know, just sheer force of personality, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. interesting. And, you know, that was the time when most society women didn't walk away from society. 
Well, yeah, you have a point. You have a point. You, you, might, you might for love, but not yeah. for a plane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It simply wasn't done. <laughs> so, and so we're now to the fall of 41. Mm -hmm. The U.S. government knows that we're going to get into World War II. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of when is this going to happen. And um, so they began training pilots in Hawaii, and they actually asked her to move there to train some of the male pilots. Hmm. They were looking for the best, and they even said that if a woman was the best, she was the fit. Wow. She jumped at the opportunity. Her mother was not happy about it. <laughs> kind of Again, in a letter, she wrote home to her mother, and if I leave here, I will leave the best job I've ever had. It's a pleasant atmosphere, a good salary. And by far the best of all the planes I could fly. Hmm. Hmm. So that leads us to December 7th, 1941, Sunday morning. Cornelia is actually out at uh, Rogers Airport in Honolulu. Hmm. She has a student, and they're taking off. She's been working with a student for a little while, and he's actually soloing today. Oh, wow. Which, of course, she has the, she has the pilot's Back controls. Seat. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, all she was supposed to do was just monitor the pilot in the plane. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, he began heading in. She was making a note that there was a few more planes than usual, mm -hmm. <laughs> which really kind of started to worry her a little yeah. bit. But she's like, eh, must be a lot more people taking, in, taking advantage of the pretty weather Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, she saw a plane coming at them. Pilot didn't know what to do, so she took the... She took command and um, pulled the plane away. Uh, the plane started shooting at him, and that's when she saw the rising sun. Hmm. How about that? So she and her student watched in horror as the bombers began bombing Pearl Harbor, watching the smoke come off of Carrier Row. Uh, she was able to land the plane, and um, they were actually able to run for cover mm -hmm. with the Japanese uh, strafing them. Mm -hmm. The actual guy who was head of the airport— and two other planes died that day. Wow. Civilian-wise. Wow. When they landed, the student had jokingly asked when he could solo. <laughs> and as she made her reply, they heard the machine gun fire. Wow. And that's when they had to die for cover, so he never really got her an his <laughs> answer from her. <laughs> so she may have been the first, or they uh, may have been the first Americans that were attacked, may have been, in Pearl Harbor. They, were the, they were the first in air, first definitely. First in air. Person here. Mm -hmm. How about that? And they said that when they actually scrambled into the hangar, that most of the mechanics and other pilots didn't know what was going on because mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. was going on a couple miles away at the next oh, at well, the main yeah. mm -hmm. at the main airfield. Yeah. Um, she's trying to convince them what's going on, and another mechanic rushed in and said to the head of the airport that his student had been killed by machine by machine gun fire. Mm. How about that? September of 1942, Fort became the second woman to join the women's. Auxiliary Fairing Squad, the WAFS, under the direction of pilot Nancy Love. Women weren't allowed to go to combat, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. And so one of the things that they did was they let the women bring the planes back and forth hmm. between the the manufacturing plants mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the air bases. Oh, okay. That okay. freed up the male pilots to where they could actually, you know, go out and fight and do what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the waifs was originally came from. Oh, okay, okay. She provided documentation of her license and 500 hours of flight time, and she was approved. 
five hundred hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, of course, she was she was teaching, so she had that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just think that's a lot. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the squadron was out of Delaware, and they had one job: move the planes back and forth within the United States. They never left the U.S. Hmm. She didn't. Sea battle, of course, but she loved the experience. She loved getting to fly and being a part of the war effort. Sure. So the government believed in their abilities but didn't believe in the women. (laughs) Um, Sadly— That's a funny way to split it out, you know. They're really good at what they do, but then again, they're women. Right. (laughs) And so they weren't considered a part of the military. Even though the military paid them, Mm -hmm. they received no health benefits. They were responsible for their own uniforms— um, and they were responsible to pay for their own lodgings. Male pilots were paid three hundred eighty dollars a month, while the women were only paid two hundred fifty. Gosh, see, the women are really. This is the real definition of a patriot, you know, that you don't get all the benefits, but you fight for it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How about that? I mean, which of course she came from money, so it wasn't sure. like this was hard for her. But for right. other women, you know, and still two hundred fifty dollars a month. In a war was still good money. It's good money. It's good money. Um, whereas the women had to prove that they had 500 hours or more of flight time. Hmm. Okay. The male military pilots were only required to have 200. Hmm. Wow. That's quite a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess um, make sure you could handle it better. Make sure you weren't going to be all emotional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing that these women would, you know, this plane's rolled off the factory. I mean, it's, it hasn't even been tested, mm-hmm. and they're going to get in it and fly it someplace, mm-hmm. twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 feet in the air, you know. It's pretty incredible they would do that, you, mm-hmm. know? you know. And most of these women, this was what they loved. This mm-hmm. was their part of being a part of the war effort, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and they were just as important as the Rosie the Riveters. They were just as important as the nurses, you know, being able to do this. Yeah, yeah. They had to put up with the male pilots harassing them. That was yeah, another big yeah. thing. Cornelia's own words were, any girl who has flown at all grows used to the prejudice of most men pilots who will trot out any number of reasons why a woman can't possibly be a good pilot. <laughs> um, there were a lot of undocumented rumors of male pilots actually messing with the female pilots' gas tanks to make them look bad. Oh. You know, pilots are pretty cocky anyway, especially fighter pilots. And then you add that layer on top of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, bet, I bet they had a difficult time, you know. Probably yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in 1940s, you know, mm-hmm. that was normal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sadly. Yeah. The pilots were rebased out of Long Beach, California, and she was moved to the 6th Fairing Group, mm-hmm. that's what it was called, on March 21st, 1943 which would have made her only 24. 24. A contingent of waves and male pilots were making a run of BT-13s. They were trainers, Mm -hmm. and they were going to take them to Love Field in Texas. Um, During the flight, one of the pilots kept flying underneath her and getting real close and then pulling back, Hmm. one of the male pilots, Mm -hmm. and kept doing this the whole trip. And they were a couple miles away from their destination, and they made contact. Hmm. His landing gear hit her wing and took off part of her wing. Wow. He was able to actually um, gain control of his plane. She didn't. Hmm. She did a nosedive right into the ground, no time to bail out, and died. Oh, gosh. Hmm. 
she was the first woman, American woman, to die in active military service. Hmm. Even though she wasn't formally part of the military, Mm -hmm. they still count her as the first woman uh, American killed in action. How about that? That's amazing. And still to this day, they don't know whether it was an accident or if it was him just messing with her. Well, I was wondering if there was any kind of investigation or anybody. Nothing's been found, I guess, about what actually happened. It was an quote-unquote accident. An accident, yeah. Okay. You know, <laughs> you know, this is in the middle of the war. We're not going to turn away any male pilots because they were acting stupid. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Sadly. A quote from Cornelia mm-hmm. before her death. Mm-hmm. I am grateful that my one talent flying was useful to my country. What a great quote, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great quote. She seemed like she was very well, very eloquent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, I kind of forgot to tell you that between... Pearl Harbor and actually becoming a wave, they sent her on a lot of war bond activities, trying to raise funds mm. and all that, and her mm-hmm. speaking about her experiences at Pearl Harbor. Oh, really? So mm-hmm. she was kind of in a bond drive in a way, I guess. Mm-hmm. How about that? So she did a lot of that for about nine months before Nancy approached her. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. She was brought home to Nashville, buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Nashville. Hmm. And of course, like I said, um, the airport is named after her. Mm-hmm. Now, kind of the rest of the story, in December of of 1944, the waves had been transformed the year before into the wasps. Hmm. Okay, okay. The Women's Air Force Service Pilots. And in December of 44, they were deactivated Hmm. by the U.S. Army because the war was almost over. And they felt that these hardworking women were not needed anymore. During the time they flew, 37 more women would die in service. Hmm. And it wasn't until November 23rd of 1977 that one of the WASP would be recognized as a military veteran. 1977. Mm-hmm. So just 44 years ago. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> By the time many of the women who had served had passed, the 200 that were still alive in 2010 actually got a congressional gold medal. Hmm. For their service in the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the short, brief life of Cornelia Ford. Ford. <laughs> well, you know, she, um, an amazing person. And I, I thought between Pearl Harbor and the accident, I thought it was a shorter amount of time. I didn't realize that she was flying up until 43. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's incredible. And uh, I don't know if Love Field is still there, but flying down there, you know. And I wonder, I guess the crash site's long gone, but it would be interesting to follow up on some of that and just see what she has available, you know. We have her will upstairs, and uh, it's beautifully written. I, I see what you're saying about being very eloquent because she it comes through in her writing, and it's, it's obvious from her writing that she's eloquent and well-educated and, and you know, quite a personality. So uh, I can imagine the family was appalled when she went into the, the flying service, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, but it, it's a great story about an Asheville, and I don't think a lot of people know. You know, Mm-mm, no, and, and uh, no one really knows about it, you know, and so I'm glad you're here to tell it. Yeah. Recently, one of my friends actually posted um, Gary Burke. He's a, a 13th Tennessee reenactor yeah. over at Fort Negley. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually went as part of Memorial Day and went down and cleaned her grave. Really? Mm-hmm. And posted pictures and talked a little bit about her, um, which was really cool because, like I said, most of the time when I mention her, most people Nobody don't have knows. a clue who she yeah. is. <laughs> That's right. They don't have a clue. Well, that was really nice of Gary, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was nice of you to uh, come in today and talk about her. You know, we need to talk. And 
you know, a Nashvilleian, you know, mm-hmm. and this is a pretty direct connection to World War II and, and especially all the, the service that women have done over the years. And this kind of may have started a lot of it as far as, you know, her legacy she left. So that's really cool, you know. And um, our chapter, the Robert Cook chapter, um, actually um, honored her as a women in American history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the DAR takes nominations for women who are um, have done something to contribute to history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have to be anybody famous like this. Right. Um, they do women who just they have a they contribute something to their sure. county, their city. And we nominated Cornelia last year. How about that? That's cool. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good one to do. So. Well, I know there are, uh, speaking about World War II and, and the military wars in general in the United States, there are a lot of other women that are active in this, I know. And you had mentioned something earlier. We talked about war correspondence, and that's another mm-hmm. area where women serve that people may not really know. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, we do. Uh, they, women have contributed a lot to the military service of the United States. So, yeah, uh, it'd be interesting to hear about some of those if you've studied on some of those. Uh, um, I have. Correspondence. <laughs> I have. I actually, as you know, I reenact uh, female war correspondence with my husband when we do World War II. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the best way for me to get to take pictures yeah. and be on the field with him. <laughs> I was trying to look up one um, that I didn't have on my list, and I'm drawing a blank on her name right now. But prior to World War II, we actually had a lot of female war correspondents. Hmm. Okay, really? World War II was really kind of the time when most women got into it. But, mm-hmm. you know, our first actual American war correspondent was Margaret Fuller. In 1846, at the age of 36, she became a journalist for the New York Tribune. Well, that's really early, earlier than I thought. Mm-hmm. 1846? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And she was spent to Europe. Um, she was actually supposed to be doing social puff pieces. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, but she wound up going to Italy and got to cover the revolutions there and the bombardment of Rome by the French. <laughs> about that? And so she started sending stories back home to the States. And the woman I can't remember the name of that I was trying to remember, during the Civil War, there wasn't a lot of women actually reporting on it, mm-hmm. per se. But the Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. There is a young woman whose family owned a newspaper about 12 miles away from Gettysburg. So she got up early in the morning. She walked to where Lincoln was going to give his address mm-hmm. and stood there with her notepad. Now, all the men are laughing at her. Yeah. All the male reporters, everybody's sitting there, and they're going, oh, my goodness, what is she going to do? Lincoln talks forever. Huh. And so she starts writing. She is the only person to take down the entire speech. And it was only a couple of minutes long because it's, what, 176 yeah, words? Yeah, very short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so when most of the other papers reprinted it, it was actually from her paper the day before. How, really? How mm-hmm. about that? That's I, a great scoop, you know? Mm-hmm. And I can't remember her name to save my life. And I was trying to look it up, and I can't find it. Um, she took down the entire thing. And the only person, I guess, first person account mm-hmm. of what— what Lincoln said that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, all amazing. the other male reporters were there and they're like, oh, we'll get a copy from so and so. We'll right, do this. Because yeah. they thought it's way too long. And then, I mean, as soon as he was done talking and she was sure it was over, she had hightailed it back and they got their edition out immediately. How about that? What a great story. I wonder if there's any other issues around. You know, it'd be a neat, it'd be a neat issue to have, you know? Mm-hmm. 
the, the first uh, publication of the Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, like I said, everybody else was actually copying her article. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even the reporters that were there. That's amazing. Of course, nobody gave her credit. Oh, no, no. Of course not. No. Um, Cora Taylor Crane, the wife of Stephen Crane, hmm. Red Badge of Courage. Yeah. Actually covered the Greco-Turkish Wars in 1897 for the New York Journal. Hmm. Of course, he was there with her. A lot of times you had these husband and wife teams working Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Anna Benjamin became the first female photojournalist. She actually covered the Spanish-American War and then the Philippine Insurrection. She was known for her youth, her beauty, and her bulky box camera that she kept (laughs) over her, slung over her shoulder. I was going to ask you about that. Can you imagine trying to do photography in 1897, you know, and blog mm-hmm. all that stuff down there, and then you're in the Philippines or Cuba, and humidity and everything else that plays into that, you know, that's mm-hmm. pretty. That's a pretty incredible story right there, mm-hmm. you know. I'm just trying to think about the way they had their film back then. I would think the moisture and everything would have just yeah, ruined I the camera. I don't see how you, you know, with these emulsions and those pl- glass plates and all that, you know, it'd, it'd be a real hassle. <laughs> mm-hmm. So now we get up to World War I. Um, there's a woman named Mary Boyle O'Reilly. Um, she was in Belgium when the Germans invaded, and she reported on the fire and devastation for three weeks. Hmm. That went on for three weeks hmm. uh, to the Boston pilot. A year later, using Saturday Evening Post credentials, Mary Roberts Reinhardt was able to leave England and arrive in Dunkirk. Hmm. And was there in France reporting on the German bombardment. Wow, pretty amazing. Another younger journalist at the time was Peggy Hull. She was actually covering the attacks of Pancha Villa. And if you're familiar with that, prior to our entry into World War I, Pancha Villa was coming across the border. He was attacking America. Mm-hmm. And General Pershing was actually the person who was down there trying to fight him off. <laughs> and so she was covering all this, and she met him in wow. 1916. She met Pancho Villa? <laughs> uh, no, General Pershing. General Pershing. General Pershing. Uh, they were trying that's to catch Pancho Villa. Yeah, that's pretty incredible, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when World War I began, she actually volunteered to go write the war from a Western perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the War Department was like, No. <laughs> Just forget it. We're not doing this. And um, she tried and tried, um, went and talked to congressmen, senators. Finally, she called up her good friend, General Pershing. <laughs> she was able to actually go and spend a month and a half in an artillery training camp in France. Wow. The male journalists were so upset because they couldn't even get credentials through the War Department. They just kept complaining and complaining, and finally— the, the military sent her home. <laughs> okay. So she actually talked to another general she had met in France, and he actually finally got her credentialed in mm. 1918. In return, the War Department decided that they were going to send her on assignment mm-hmm. to Siberia. <laughs> well, that's convenient. Yeah. Get rid of her for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so after the wars ended, she actually stayed in Siberia and was reporting on the Russian Civil War, the Russian Revolution. Wow. She actually went to China and was able to report on the invasion of Japan by China. Good. Right. Um, what's really interesting was that when she actually went to World War I, the first time she had cut her hair mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the you know the 1920s, that flapper look. Uh, yeah. 
when she went to uh, China later on, she actually had her hair pinned up. And her and her photographer and her driver had all gotten pinned down hmm. uh, while they were covering some of the invasion. And they actually shot her driver. They shot her photographer. Wow. And before they could shoot her, she took her hair down. And they realized she was a woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, How about that? And so she survived the situation and mm-hmm. went and talked to the guy in charge mm-hmm. for the Japanese army. And he says, if you don't go home, you're going to wind up dead. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty rough place to be, you know. And it, it's amazing how these women are right at the front lines. I mean, this is not a mm-hmm. not a rear echelon kind of thing. They're, they're right at the front. Mm-hmm. You know? Pretty amazing. And Peggy survived. I mean, mm-hmm. she lived to a ripe old age. Mm-hmm. How about that? Came home and did everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but I thought it was kind of funny because all the pictures of her from World War One, she's actually in a doughboy uniform, uh-huh, which uh-huh. she bought herself <laughs> since the government would not give her any money no. and wouldn't accredit herself and had her hair cut real short. And then later on when she was, she was still in a military uniform, but, you know, she was more feminine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you would get, you get some who would wear the pearls and wear the... Oh, yeah. um, Wear the hair and do their makeup to try to get into things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other ones, they had their signature look. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Dickie Chappelle, which I'll talk about in a little bit. She was known for her glasses. Huh. She had these black rimmed glasses and her pearl earrings. <laughs> when World War II started, the U.S. War Department accredited 1,600 journalists as war correspondents for military and civilian publications. Of those, only 127 were women. Hmm. Um, most of them reported for newspapers, magazines, eight wire services, and five radio networks. Hmm. Now, there was a whole lot more women there that were not accredited. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, again, Dickie Chappelle was accredited and then actually would lose her accreditation. Uh, she was actually one of the first ones because she had, um, with her husband— he was a photojournalist, mm-hmm. and they had actually covered some other stuff prior to World War II. And then he was about 20 years older than her. Hmm. And so he was starting to not do as well. And she said, well, I'm just going to start taking pictures myself. Yeah. <laughs> Which by that well, point, you, you know, you've got like the Argus Centaur. You've got the Kodak. So you've got a little bit more manageable cameras mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. compared to the box ones. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> And so she joined up with the Marines and actually was with them when they went to Okinawa. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And the U.S. government got mad because they did not want any of these women in the actual combat situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they revoked her credentials at that point. <laughs> um, and I'm going to talk more about her because she actually has a Tennessee connection. Hmm. Okay. But I'm going to get to her after World War II. Yeah. Women journalists had a fight on two fronts against the army brass that didn't want the women there. Mm -hmm. And then to gather the information without getting killed. Just like any male journalist, like any... There is that, yeah. You know, they're often denied permission to cover certain events. One of the excuses was, well, there'll be no women's bathrooms available. (laughs) Um, Women journalists were giving substandard housing and often harassed by the men in the armies. Mm -hmm. They weren't even actually allowed in the press briefings until the end of the war. (laughs) <laughs> now, most scholars say there's a difference between the reporting of sexists, mm-hmm. the sexes, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Male journalists are known for their more matter-of-fact style, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. while female journalists bring more of a personal side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Martha Gellhorn. Martha Gellhorn was actually started reporting on the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And as some people may know, she was married to Ernest Hemingway, one of his many wives. <laughs> really? How about that? And so when the war started, she was actually publishing under Mrs. Hemingway. Hmm. And her, um, they had an ID card that had their fingerprints and all their information on it in a picture. And hers actually still says Martha Hemingway <laughs> when you look at that. But she got in the trenches with the men. Hmm. Uh, Her and um, Hemingway had both done that during the Spanish Civil War in Spain, um, all the other things they had covered. Mm -hmm. And so that was very normal for her. But she would still write about the aspects of what was really going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Many female correspondents wrote about the heroism of the medics, the doctors, the nurses, and never let people at home forget that there were civilians that were still crowded in the crossfire. Whether it be the people of the other countries, whether it be our nurses, our doctors. Mm -hmm. And so um, even pre-war, there was a lot of people still covering. Sigrid Schultz in 1927 was named the chief of Central Europe, reporting for the Chicago Tribune. She was the first woman to hold this position for any news outlet, actually. Um, And she actually uh, reported on the invasion of Poland by Germany. Wow. It amazes me how some of these women are at pivotal points in history, you know, the the invasion of China by Japan, the invasion of Poland by Germany, you know, and they're there mm-hmm. and they're able to report on this these things, you know, and and being the station chief is a pretty incredible thing, you know, especially mm-hmm. considering we're still talking about the time frame we are, you know. Right. And uh, it's, it's pretty amazing that they're there and, and they're at the right place at the right time, you know. And apparently, you know, these governments, the foreign governments— would allow them to be there, and they could report it. You know, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. Gellhorn, like I said, she covered the Spanish Civil War in thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. After that, she actually began to kind of follow the rise of Hitler. She mm-hmm. realized this man was up to no good, and kind of was following a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And during that time, that's when her and Hemingway kind of parted ways <laughs> and separated. Margaret Burke White was one of the first photojournalists in the war. Mm-hmm. She was a neighbor to us in Georgia, uh, where she's originally from. While in Germany, she was present to actually report and photograph the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Hmm. She did this for five months. Wow. She was on her way to Russia when Germany broke its non-aggressive pact with the country and was the only foreign correspondent actually in Russia when Germany invaded. Really? How about that? Mm -hmm. That'd be quite a story to tell, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, there's, and there's all sorts of books out there. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of, these women wrote their stories or other people came back and wrote them for them. Yeah, yeah. Helen Kirkpatrick was covering the Blitz. She followed the U.S. Army to both Algeria and the Mediterranean Theater. Um, she was present for the storming in Normandy and um, was one of the first war correspondents to be atta- attached to the Free French Forces. Really? Free mm-hmm. French? Mm-hmm. And she rode on a tank for the liberation of Paris. <laughs> like I say, you're there at the right place at the right time, you mm-hmm. know. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Going back to Martha Burke White, the one who's originally from Georgia. Mm-hmm. I've actually met friends of hers. Oh, nice. um, while I was down there for a reenactment, we were talking one day. She wanted to go to North Africa. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to report on the fighting there. 
and she was told that it was just too dangerous to fly her from London to North Africa. So she bought a ticket on an Allied ship that would just <laughs> happen to be going to Algeria. <laughs> it was torpedoed. Oh, great. Um, she took pictures of the situation from her lifeboat. <laughs> um, she would actually later ride with General Patton um, in Italy. Um, and she would be the first journalist to actually cover the liberation of, um, and I know I'm going to botch this, um, Bachenwald concentration camp. Wow. Well, you know, that, I mean, all of those experiences, I mean, to have the presence of mind to document the ship you're on being sunk, you know, Mm -hmm. and then ride around with General Patton, that had to be an experience. And then Buchenwald, you know, Mm -hmm. my goodness, what do you say about that, you know? Well, now, a side note on General Patton. As you know, we did the Tennessee maneuvers here, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the men were actually trained in Tennessee because of the similarities to Europe and Mm -hmm. Germany and France. Mm -hmm. And uh, General Patton actually stayed out at Gallatin at Rosemont, which was Judge Guild's original house that Mm -hmm. had been there Mm -hmm. since before the Civil War. And uh, the family lived there. General Patton stayed there, and all of his men camped out on the grounds. How about that? One of the one of the gentlemen who was living there, Patton said, let me take you on a Jeep ride and I'll show you around to all the troops. <laughs> when Mr. Anderson got out, he got down on his knees and kissed the ground and was thankful <laughs> that he'd never had to ride with Patton again. So that may not have been the most enjoyable experience yeah, for him. Yeah. So, I mean, you can imagine Patton driving, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. What a great story. And that was here. Mm-hmm. You say that was Gallatin? Gallatin. Gallatin, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that's still left of the property is the actual mansion because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, they've built Guild School just a little bit ways down, on down the ways on some uh, of that original property. Okay, okay. But you can go out there and generally see this mm-hmm. is about where, I guess, the Second Army and this is where Patton was and this mm-hmm. is where all these things happened. It's right here in our backyard. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Lot, there's a lot of the history about that. Um, and I'm going to bring some specialists who know more about the maneuvers mm-hmm. uh, for one of your podcasts. Cool. That'd be great. Um, women found a way to be part of D-Day, which, mm-hmm. of course, the U.S. Army did not want them in any way, shape, or form in the danger. Reporters in general were told that they would not be able to get on the beaches on the first couple of days. Hmm. Most okay. men weren't there till day three, I believe. Mm-hmm. Martha Gellhorn, Mrs. Hemingway herself, oh, here we go. Refused to wait, <laughs> so she snuck onto one of the hospital ships, locked herself in the bathroom until they were almost to Normandy. Got out, um, dressed like a nurse, grabbed a stretcher, and was one of the first people on the beaches within the first day. Good night. <laughs> She's been around Hemingway too long. Yeah. <laughs> well, she scooped him. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Lee Miller, um, she's a, when you read some of her stuff, her stuff's kind of funny. Um, She was present for the London Blitz, the liberation Mm. of Paris, the liberation of two concentration camps. Mm. She had a group of soldiers that she had been through most of the war with. Mm -hmm. They were all very close. And uh, when they got to Germany after the death of Hitler, they found his Munich apartment. And there's a picture of her taking a bath in Hitler's bathtub. <laughs> See, I think that's the, that's the ultimate insult, you know. 
That's a great one. <laughs> so, there's a couple of uh, women who were there at the Battle of the Bulge, mm-hmm. were there when the U.S. and the Red Armies met. Catherine Corn, Marjorie Avery. Sorry, I'm looking for one in particular because this one's actually kind of funny. Anna Stinger was present at Chagua. Mm-hmm. That is actually where the Russian and the American troops actually, and I may have pronounced that wrong, but that's where they met. Where they actually met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she was there essentially when it was over. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the allies have linked up and it's over and she was yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. What was funny was that most of the soldiers, most of the men, including the reporters, started celebrating. <laughs> Anna wasn't going to have that. Anna jumped up, um, hopped on a C-47 back to Paris, and was the first to actually report that the U.S. and Red Armies had actually joined. (laughs) At the end of the war, she would go on to interview the wives of Benito Mussolini and Heinrich Himmler. Wow. You wonder how she got to—how you get to them, you know? Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I think just you've established yourself. Yeah. And let's now go talk to these— War criminals. Mm-hmm. Let's talk to their mm-hmm. wives. Let's see the humanitarian side of them as well as what led them to where they are today. Exactly. It's great insight, you know. Mm-hmm. One last one I wanted to talk about, uh, Claire Luce Booth. Um, if you may recognize that name, she was a writer. She was an actress originally. She actually wrote The Women, hmm. okay. a 1937 movie, mm-hmm. well, play and movie. She actually has Nashville roots. She uh, grew up in Memphis and Nashville, part of her life. She's actually originally from New York and was a debutante, kind of like Cornelia Fort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she went to um, Ward Belmont as well and is listed as being a alumni of Harpeth Hall, which is the high school section of Ward Belmont. Oh, okay. You know, that's okay. what became yeah. that. I see. Okay. But she actually... Even though she was already famous, even though she was already well-known, she went to China and actually interviewed the emperor and empress in China during the war, was in uh, Burma. But she had a Nashville connection as well. You know, it's amazing how these ladies, I mean, you have soft government endorsement at best, and then you're able to get in to see, you know, the emperor of China during the war and go to Mm -hmm. Burma and D-Day, and all these other things. I mean, this this is a very uh, resourceful people, mm-hmm. you know, in a very difficult time. But, yeah, it's amazing how they can get to these places and do these things, you know, when – and a lot of people just simply wouldn't think of it, right. you know. But they – you know, all, news reporters, they have to have an angle, mm-hmm. you know. And so this is, this is a great thing for them that they're thinking far enough ahead to be able to do these things, you know. And mm-hmm. it just amazes me that they could uh, – a lady could finagle her way into an uh, interview with the, the emperor of China in the middle mm-hmm. of the war, you know. And mm-hmm. and so it's really fascinating. It really is. I mean, these are stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have to be, de- I mean, as a as a reporter, you have to be determined. Mm-hmm. You've got to get that story. And mm-hmm. women were used to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. This was just another stumbling block for them. <laughs> yeah. so. Um, so now I want to talk about uh, Georgette Dickey Chappelle. Okay. She was the one that I was telling you had, was actually the first to be accredited and then lost it from oh, yeah, the yeah. U.S. government. Yeah. She was 41 years old. Mm-hmm. In 1959, 
She had been reporting for 20 years at that point. And she came to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Hmm. She had heard about the 101st and about um, the paratrooper division and actually went up the first time in um, the summer of 1959 and got her um, jump wings. How about that, really? Mm-hmm. Um, she said it was one of the greatest experiences one can have and went and just trained. And she was one of the few, one of the only women, actually, in Vietnam who was trained to jump into combat with the soldiers <laughs> as a reporter. While she was getting her qualification for airborne, did she report on that? I mean, she was talking about that as it went on and... I didn't see anything that definitely said that, but mm-hmm. I would think mm-hmm. she was probably reporting for reporting. someone. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I can't imagine you wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, she actually published nine books. Hmm. Um, she was the one who started out with her husband. Mm-hmm. And then when he retired, um, she continued going, taking pictures. She liked the Marines a lot. She stayed okay. with a lot of the Marines, with Marines a lot of times. Uh-huh. Yeah. She actually had... Um, Prior to Vietnam, had actually met Fidel Castro. <laughs> and he called her the polite little American with the tiger blood in her veins. <laughs> so, That's incredible. She actually learned of the Screaming Eagles, wanted to go. She actually did a practice jump in 1960 into Korea. Wow. With the Army, which means she probably was with my grandfather because at that point he was actually in Korea. <laughs> And then went off to Vietnam. Hmm. Again, she was the one who had the trademarked black-rimmed glasses and the pearl earrings. In 1962, she said that in one night, she had three different men come up and talk to her. They were all Marines. Hmm. And they told her that, you interviewed my father in World War II. (laughs) So this was the second generation of soldiers that she was actually covering. Covering. How about that? These are long tenures, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She was actually still in Vietnam in November of 1965. She was with the Marines. They had actually were going through this town. They were coming out of camp. She got in with this group of Marines. Um, she and another journalist had actually had a bet the day before. She says, I bet my group gets shot at before you do. <laughs> um, she lost the bet. <laughs> Next day, she says, don't worry, we'll get shot at this time. Well, they didn't get shot at. They actually got ambushed. Um, someone stepped on a grenade mm-hmm. that actually, or triggered a grenade that triggered a mortar. Mm-hmm. A piece of shrapnel actually lodged in her neck. Um, they got her on the first helicopter they could, but she bled out on the helicopter. Mm-hmm. And she was the first female war correspondent killed in action. In action. How about that? Wow, Mm -hmm. that's amazing. So, um, and they said that years later when talking with the South Vietnamese Airborne, Mm -hmm. because she even jumped with them down the road, they still remembered the small, foul-mouthed woman who jumped with them. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And, I mean, there was a lot of female journalists during Vietnam. Mm -hmm. That's just not Mm -hmm. my specialty. Mm -hmm. Um, And still today, I mean, we see stuff everywhere in the country, in the world, that there's stuff going on, and we see the women, the women who are writing it. Yeah, you know the interesting thing for for us is that these women who started this so early, they kind of set the pace for the United States. You know, 
especially with World War II was such a huge effort, mm-hmm. you know, and you see you see women all through that, you know, and it was really intriguing to hear about them being uh, actually on the front line. You know, this is not, you're not at a, at a base somewhere or a post writing up reports you see, but mm-hmm. you're out there with them. And as you said before, you know, they give a different perspective to it as far as a more personal side of what's going on, you know, and mm-hmm. I think readers, I think that really appealed, appeals now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure it appealed then, and I can see why the Army somewhat reluctantly, you know, said, well, okay, you know, officially no, but we like what we see, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and reporting for their papers, you know, I can I can see that. And, and uh, you know, the United States, we're so far away, uh, we're not really censoring anything, and and they know they know what's not what's not to be published, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's amazing what uh, the bulk of information that uh, women actually pull through. And and some of these ladies you've mentioned, I mean, it would be neat to to follow up the World War II ladies and see did they write about their experience and how these experiences changed them, you know. And mm-hmm. and the Hemingway, I mean, what can you say about Hemingway, you know? And and his wife, you know, that's. Uh, why well, I'm not surprised, and so it, it's amazing how how all this plays together, mm-hmm. and uh, and I appreciate you doing this and pulling these together for us today. You know, and it's been a lot of fun. And I know you reenact, uh, you do living history for mm-hmm. uh, war correspondent, female war correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a particular unit you do, or something you like to do, or? I just kind of just do in general. I actually have an authentic military. War correspondent patch on my uniform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually haven't got to do it in a little while because of having kids. Right. Yeah. Life gets in the way. Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> but um, when we do get to do it, we have a display. I usually have books. There's a couple books out there. One of them is called "The Women Who Wrote the War." Oh, cool. Okay. Um, I think Lee Miller actually wrote a few. Like I said, Dickie Chappelle wrote nine during World War II by itself. Wow. Yeah, that we got to find her, you know. <laughs> Claire Luce Booth actually went on to become an ambassador to Italy. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Um, and I believe she wrote about some of her experiences. And I'm thinking that Margaret Burke White actually just retired to Georgia. <laughs> got married, retired to Georgia, and, and just stayed there. Stayed there, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you know, it sounds great, and I appreciate you doing all of these, and uh, we'll, uh, I'll get some of these names from you and put them together with this post. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add in closing out, anything about these women, these war correspondents, or Cornelia, or, you know, I think you've covered them real well, and, and I appreciate you bringing these people forward, because this is something we need to know, and we need to learn and understand, you know, that right. there's there's uh, there's so many dimensions to the, our history that we need to focus on and bring out, you know. So, yeah, I appreciate you doing that today. It's really cool. Well, thank you for having me. This is this is kind of where I like to do. I like to try to remember the women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I said, that's one of our projects with DAR is remembering the lost patriots. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of women have actual female patriots they've come in on. Now, that's really interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so um, just trying to, you know, what the women's contribution is, but also um, minorities. We've actually started a lot of, um, Mm -hmm. we're looking at the black soldiers. We're Mm -hmm. looking at the Indian soldiers. We're looking at the Spanish. Um, There's a lot of Spanish who helped with the American Revolution and then settled down in Texas, Mexico area, um, California. And so a lot of those people were starting to actually go through and pull. 
That's pretty interesting. You know, maybe sometime we could do something about that. Because, you know, everyone thinks, well, it's a Revolutionary War soldier. But there were so many more things to it, you know, mm-hmm. assistance and kind and everything else. And, and the women participated. So, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. we could talk about that one day, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, not, and yeah. Not, yeah, not yeah. all of them were soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. some of them gave food. Technically, some of—now, this is what I've been told— mm-hmm. If there's documentation that your female ancestors spit on a soldier on a British soldier, that counts. That's good enough. As patriotism. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who got land from the Revolutionary War because of their contributions like here in Nashville defending mm-hmm. the Indian attacks mm-hmm. during that same time period. Well, you know, one thing people don't realize, you know, that that there was a, a western theater, if you will, mm-hmm. and uh past the the Appalachian Mountains, you know. And keeping the Cherokee and the Chickasaw, keeping the tribes here occupied. So, yeah, yeah, there was a, there's a second dimension to the Revolutionary War. It's not all on the eastern coast, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, well, thank you for having me today. You're quite welcome. And I appreciate you being here, and thank you for your time today. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening in. Uh, this has been Ken Feith with Back in the Day, and you have a great day. 